Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode, we'll discuss data that sheds new light on Natural England's resourcing issues. We'll take a look at the devastating pollution event that led to a £500,000 fine for a fertiliser manufacturer, and we'll get the latest on a trial to release wildcats into the Cairngorms. Then, in this episode's deep dive, we'll hear from Uplift's Tessa Khan on whether the legal profession has a problem with ethics, and should corporate directors have personal liability when it comes to climate and environmental impacts. So, without further ado, let's enter the eco-chamber. I'm Jamie Carpenter, and I'm here with reporter Shosha Aidi. The first story of this episode's Big Green News section relates to data exclusively obtained by ENS under environmental information regulations. These figures relate to the number of employees who were assigned to carry out condition assessments across England's 4,100 sites of special scientific interest, or SSSIs. And what the figures show us is that Natural England had the time resource equivalent of just over 56 full-time employees assigned to carry out assessments across England's SSSIs, and that equates to just one full-time equivalent employee for every 73 sites. Shosha, that doesn't sound very good. Um, how, how have campaigners responded to these figures? It doesn't sound good, does it? Um, The RSPB have said the figures are a cause for serious concern. Um, To quote Kate Jennings, who's head of site conservation and species policy at the organisation, these figures show how thinly resources spread and it's simply not enough. We need to see those increasing resources translated into action by Natural England. She also added that England's precious habitats, such as rare chalk grasslands or heathlands, are not just something that's nice to have, but are essential for the country's nature recovery goals. So, for example, its 30 by 30 commitment made at COP15 to protect at least 30% of land and sea for nature by 2030. Um, On this goal as well, the Wildlife and Countryside Link's Head of Policy and Advocacy, Matt Brown, Um, said that as we come closer to that 2030 deadline, it must be questioned whether Natural England actually has the level of resources needed for the scale of the task. Okay, great. But but Natural England has a, a, I think it's fair to say, a different view to to this. Well, what's it said in response to our findings? Yes, Natural England pushed back on the significance of the figures that were released by ENDS and said the calculation only considers part of Natural England's work to improve the triple SIs, as it only takes into account those that are assigned to monitoring and the regulator remains committed to delivering their targets for these areas. And of course, these figures come just after the release of our new film, Wilderness, which, um, amongst other things, it shows how millions of taxpayer pounds have been been spent in, in green farming schemes in national parks, while protected sites like triple size in the same places have, have, have degraded. And um, in that documentary, you talk to Natural England insiders, and they, they, they're warning that the government is way off track from meeting its the, the target shots that you talked about, and it needs to be realistic about its lack of progress. So... Um, if you're listening to the podcast and you haven't seen the film yet, you, you really must. So go over to um, engreport.com and, and have a look. But um, listen to the podcast first before you, before you do. Our second story this week relates to a fine that has been handed to a liquid fertiliser firm, Omex Agriculture. It has been handed a £500,000 fine for what the Environment Agency has said is one of the largest environmental incidents ever recorded in Lincolnshire. Shosha, what, what happened? Well, due to what the court heard was effectively a faulty pipe, 
approximately 3 million litres of urea ammonium nitrate fertiliser escaped from the company's storage lagoon um, into the river Whitam, which is near Bradney in Lincolnshire, and its tributaries in March 2018. Um, this fertiliser was held in two sealed bladder bags, according to the EA, which were both holding the equivalent liquid of three Olympic swimming pools. Wow which is 7.5 million litres. Um, and this spill resulted in the death of over 135,000 fish and stretched 23 kilometres downstream of the site. So Omex, this company, which is estimated to have an annual turnover of about 103 million, um, pleaded guilty and was charged with causing poisonous noxious or polluting matter into inland freshwaters, which goes against the environmental permitting regulations. And on the 12th of June, they were given a fine of £160,000 and ordered to pay costs of £350,000 as well as, you know, the usual victim surcharge. Um, and I think one of the points that was quite interesting is the judge said the incident was avoidable had proper checks been made um, and checks were not clear or well documented. So the EA predicted OMEX will be responsible for monitoring and maintaining these improvements for at least the next decade. Wow, it sounds like a horrific incident. Um, and I, I suppose when 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 we when we normally talk about fines like this, we, we we often talk about the the size of the penalty and whether whether people think it's a sufficient deterrent. And, I, and to me, at least, half a million pounds doesn't really seem a lot to be paying if you've you've um, wiped out all the invertebrates along a twenty three kilometre stretch of river. Um, what's the what's the response been, Joshua? I, I know you've been seeking some reaction to to the level of fine that's been handed out. Yeah, there was actually quite a lot of uproar about this fine on Twitter. And I think if we even look at our own fines monitor um, on our website, which sort of documents the fines that have been given out in the past decade, um, it does pale in comparison to the millions that water companies, for example, have gotten. Um, and even this year, the top three highest payouts for UK environmental crimes for 2023 are all over £1 million each, um, with Anglia Water facing the biggest this year at £2.7 million. So Richard Benwell, who I spoke to, um, he's chief executive of the Wildlife and Countryside Link charity, put this quite diplomatically. And he said, it's difficult to put a precise price tag on environmental harm and restoration, but the dreadful cost of this spill must surely be more than the fine levied. He described the EA action as welcome, but he said the government needs to give the agency the means to consistently take effective action with sanctions that are proportionate to the extent of the harm and dissuasive enough to stop both big spills like this and then also the everyday chronic chemical pollution, which he described as poisoning our natural world. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't sound... It doesn't. It doesn't seem to me that it's a um, sufficient penalty, but um, I'm sure Omex might say something different. I mean, have they said anything in response to the prosecution? They have. Um, Omex said it, it deeply regrets the incident that took place. Um, quite a classic line, but it has also added that it did act with total transparency at all times and cooperated closely with the EA. Which, to be fair, the EA did back up um, and organisations it has been working with in the area. Um, plus a range of authorities. Their spokesperson also said extensive ecological enhancements have already been made by Omex and they said ecologists have reported invertebrate and fish diversity levels have reached pre-incident levels and habitats regenerating well. Um, and of course, they said they've made significant investments. So that's their line on the matter. 
Okay, well, good, good to hear that there's some recovery going on anyway. Um, so on, on, a, on a different theme, we're going to finish up this week's Big Renew section by talking about some magnificent beasts known as um, Highland Tigers. Yay! So, um, so this, this is about wildcats, which um, apparently are often dubbed Highland Tigers. I didn't know that until I read the story today. Um, but they're, they're on, on the brink of extinction in Scotland. Um, but, but the good news is that efforts are underway to secure the future of the species. And some, there was some news on this, Joshua. What's, what's the latest? Well, yes, they are. the efforts are well underway. 22 wildcats were released into the Cangorms National Park in the Scottish Highlands last week. Um, and this is part of a project that will see approximately 60 wildcats released over the next three years, which is quite exciting. Um, it's being run by the Saving Wildcats Partnership, which is led by the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland. And it's been approved by NatureScot, which is Scotland's natural England. Um, I think the cats are only about one years old at the moment, and they were born at a conservation centre in Highland Wildlife Park near Avermore, which is a town I'm dying to visit. It's supposed to be gorgeous. That's within the national park. So another one, one more reason to visit though. The wild, the wild cats are there too. Yes, the Highland tigers. Although they're so small, I feel like that's quite a um, makes them sound a lot scarier than they yeah, are, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, and w- w- one of the things I thought was interesting in the in the coverage was around the the. Um, I guess the outlook for the cats and 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 the fact that um, people are saying they might they might face some fairly significant challenges if they're to survive out in the in the wild. Yes, unfortunately, one of um, the the issues they're facing is how to navigate traffic, which I found quite oh. sad. Um, but I think efforts have been made to prepare them with everything else, such as moving them into like a large pre-release enclosure beforehand, which is supposed to support natural development. Um, and the researchers are following the footsteps of other successful, I guess, um, carnival recovery projects in Europe, such as that of the Iberian lynx in Spain and Portugal. So hopefully, hopefully it will do well. And then, of course, it's a trial. So hopefully it will inform whatever happens going forward. Fantastic stuff. And um, while we're talking about Magnificent Beasts, um, well, very briefly, just as a, a sort of a, a bonus story, I'd like to draw attention to a, what appears to be a spectacular own goal by DEFRA, which um, managed to include some frolicking sea otters in a in a video that it posted on Twitter about the River Wye. Oh, God, yes. And, um, and the, the problem is that they weren't, they weren't um, European, Eurasian otters. They were actually um, the type of otters that can only be found in the North Pacific. Um, and apparently the, the video was taken down and it was sort of within minutes after there was a flurry of people on, on Twitter sort of who spotted it on, on, on social media and criticised DEFRA. Um, can you give a, a kind of quick flavour of what was said about this? Yes. Without going into it too deeply, um, one of the people that was actually credited with pointing out that these otters were very much not from the Y um, was Mark Avery, who's a former conservation director at RSPB, so a bit of an expert. Um, and he said, this trivial error is just an amusing example of quite how hopeless DEFRA are. Um, there's a wildlife crisis and DEFRA is a large part of the problem and a tiny part of the solution, which I think is very, very harsh. Um, but also, you know, I feel really bad for that person. Um, I think it was a junior yeah, officer right. who made the call to include that clip as they must be feeling mortified, but I don't even think it was the worst part of the video. Um, I mean, the writer and presenter, Lucy Siegel, who's also one of my journalistic icons, um, wrote a strongly worded thread that rips the whole thing to shreds and describes it as a huge red light for climate disaster comms. Yeah. So. 
pretty I strong. Mean, pretty strong. I mean, I, th- I thought one of the things that's pointed out is that this is about the the River Wye, which is um, I think is widely accepted that there's this this huge problem with um, intensive chicken farming and 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 the uh, waste from the chickens. Put it in a polite way, it sort of makes it down into the river and causes eutrophication and algal blooms. And 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 the the, the video makes no explicit reference at all to the role of chicken farms in polluting a river. So um, maybe that they need to add another new bit to the video as well as the taking the otters out. Yes. And I think um, Jamie Audsley, just a bit more on that criticism on Twitter, has spoken up a lot about the issue of poultry production and pollution in the River Wye, um, which as we all know, has recently been downgraded to an unfavourable declining status. And he said, let's be sensible and adult about this. DEFRA has the data and it can give itself its own feedback. And I thought that was quite a, well, grown up way to phrase it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the the otters were a a bit of a distraction for real real issues going on. That brings us to the end of this week's Big Renew section. Thank you to Shosha Rady for joining us this week. And now on to our deep dive section with me, ENS Report's news editor, Pippa Neal. For this week's episode, I travelled to North London to speak with Tessa Khan. Khan is an international climate change and human rights lawyer and executive director and founder of Uplift, a research and campaigning organisation that supports a just transition away from oil and gas in the UK. Labour recently announced that it would block all new oil and gas developments if elected. I began by asking whether Khan thinks this announcement goes far enough. Thanks so much, Piffa. It's really great to be part of this conversation. Um, In short, I think Labor's taken the right decision to, if it's in government, stop the expansion of oil and gas production in the UK. Uh, We've already got about 200 oil and gas fields that are producing resources at the moment across the North Sea. And so Labor's position is that they wouldn't shut down those fields. What they would do is stop the approval of new oil and gas fields, many of which have lifetimes that run over multiple decades and which are frankly impossible to square with a safe climate and 1.5 degrees of warming as well as as you alluded to um, they also contribute to the significant ongoing degradation of our marine environment which we know we also need to take urgent steps to restore and protect rather than continuing to damage. So in short, it's kind of a great move, but perhaps it doesn't go far enough in in that it doesn't, you know, they've not yet said they would stop existing oil and gas production. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think there are probably reasons for that related to the jobs that the industry currently supports Mm -hmm. um, and the broader economic benefit that the industry has brought historically to communities, particularly in the northeast of Scotland. Um, So obviously there does need to be a managed transition away Mm -hmm. from oil and gas production. Um, And I think that that's what this policy would do. It would give us a decade or so to ensure that people who work in the oil and gas workforce have the support that they need to retrain, reskill and move into the industries that we know are going to be providing jobs for decades to come. Um, But it's also broadly consistent with what we've heard from, for example, the International Energy Agency um, and others who suggest that any new investment in oil and gas production is what's really problematic if we're going to have a decent shot at staying below that critical 1.5 degree threshold of warming. Mm, Okay. 
And on new investment in oil and gas, I know that Uplift has been really vocal on your campaigning against the Cambo oil field. Um, And I saw recently that it seems that Shell is looking to potentially sell its stake. And it seems like that's in response to all of the campaigning that's been going on. So I just wondered kind of, you know, as a founder of Uplift, have you celebrated this as a win or not yet? Um, Yeah, we certainly did celebrate um, at the end of 2021, which was when Shell and the other company that's been involved, Sickerpoint Energy, the other license holder at the time, they both announced that they were either withdrawing or pausing their investment in the field. And I think that was a huge win. Uh, certainly not just for Uplift. I mean, this was a campaign that was embraced and led by so many different groups, grassroots all the way through to kind of big national NGOs. Um, And I think it took the industry by surprise. And especially in the year that the UK was hosting the Climate Summit, COP26, um, it was clear that it was impossible to proceed with the development of that field and continue to claim that the UK's in any way a climate leader or indeed acting consistently with the agreements and the targets that it's set domestically on climate. Um, So, yeah, we definitely did celebrate at the end of 2021. The fact that Shell is now looking to sell its stake is, I think, another indication that Shell sees that there's too much risk around Cambo because of the level of public and political Mm. opposition. Um, But it's not over until the government rejects the development of the field because it is possible that the field will simply pass hands from one company to another company that's more willing to move forward in the face of public opposition. So that's why I think, again, having the government take a position and say that we can't have any new oil and gas developments in the UK, that is the kind of certainty that we need for a safe climate, but it's also the kind of certainty that will allow for that managed transition away from the oil and gas industry. Mm, Okay. And I know um, Uplift has also been doing a lot of campaigning on the Rosebank oil and gas field. So is that kind of your main focus at the moment as an organisation? It's a really big focus and that's because it's a really big oil field. I mean, it's the biggest undeveloped oil field in the UK. It's bigger than Cambo. So it's also, you know, I think in a lot of ways emblematic of everything that is wrong with the way that the UK government at the moment approaches our energy system and the notion of energy security. So aside from the fact that it's clearly incompatible with our climate goals and a safe climate, you know, burning all of the oil and gas, it's mostly oil, it's 90% oil, but burning all of that, um, all of Rosebank's reserves would create the same greenhouse gas emissions, carbon emissions as the 28 poorest countries in the world do in a year. Wow. Um, So that's quite a carbon footprint. Mm. But on top of that, developing Rosebank would involve the UK government effectively giving a £3.75 billion subsidy to the developers, which include Equinor, which is a Norwegian government-owned very wealthy Mm. oil and gas company, as are most major oil and gas companies at the moment. It's also oil, you know, 80% of which we end up exporting from the UK. So it's not meeting domestic demand. It's not going into people's cars. So it's really not helping with, you know, any sense of energy and security that we have. And finally, um, it's also going to put a massive gas pipeline through a marine protected area, Mm. you know, back to this question of how we reconcile having oil and gas infrastructure and MPAs. I mean, Rosebank is a classic example of a field that would end up really endangering and putting at risk a fragile and very important environment of biodiversity um, for the UK. Mm -hmm. So these kind of two huge oil and gas fields, I guess it really highlights that Labour's pledge to not allow new developments is a really huge, 
huge deal. Yeah, it is a huge deal. And it would be, you know, world leading um, because it would be the most ambitious pledge by a country that does have a major oil and gas industry in its own backyard to take this kind of step. Um, I mean, the one thing that I would say is that it also wouldn't be crazy because there is, in fact, already a club of countries that's emerging called the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, which is made up of governments who are all collectively agreeing to end new oil and gas licensing and to set an end date for oil and gas production in their own countries. So Denmark is one of the founders of that, you know, also a North Sea oil and gas producing country, albeit one that's a bit smaller than the UK. Mm. So, you know, there is a direction of travel in terms of climate leadership and what, you know, a new benchmark for doing the right thing for the climate looks like and ending oil and gas production is absolutely one of those. Mm. I wanted to ask you now about the concept of an unethical lawyer. Mm-hmm. So there's was a really, really interesting feature recently on ENDS report. Um, which kind of explored the question of whether environmental lawyers need to rethink the ethics of their work when they are representing clients that are contributing to either climate change or biodiversity loss. And I was just wondering, do you think lawyers should have a moral obligation to be more selective with their clients when you know representing environmental issues? Yeah, in short, absolutely. I mean, I um, started my career working for a big commercial law firm Um, And what I encountered in that environment, which I think is quite common um, within the sort of commercial legal industry, is a sense of ethical apathy that, you know, lawyers are just kind of ethically neutral technicians who are just going about their business providing a service and not actually facilitating harm when what we know is that without the legal services industry, you know, the oil and gas industry, the expansion of fossil fuel projects, none of that would be able to go ahead. They're the ones that draft the contracts, they negotiate the agreements, they oil the wheels of the machine, Mm. pun intended, you know, the entire way. And there was actually a report that was just published by um, an amazing group called Law Students for Climate Accountability in the last month or so that showed that in the UK in the last five years or so, 55 law firms have facilitated $1.8 trillion worth of fossil fuel business. I mean, it's that crazy. is a staggering sum. Mm-hmm. Um, when you consider, you know, as I said, that we've heard from the International Energy Agency, the IPCC, the UN Secretary General, the World Health Organization, you know, mainstream scientific body after the next, that increasing investment in oil and gas at this point in time is not consistent with keeping warming to 1.5 degrees. So they are on a direct collision course with what we know is needed for a safe climate. And I honestly don't know how you can justify continuing to facilitate that kind of expansion, especially when we know that there are alternative industries that we ought to be supporting. And there have been steps taken, you know, within the legal services industry in the UK, you know, there have been declarations by groups of lawyers saying we're not going to represent fossil fuel clients or prosecute people who are protesting fossil fuel expansion in the UK. Um, There was recent guidance put out by the basically standards body for the bar, the UK bar, um, saying that actually it's okay to act consistently with your conscience on these matters and that you're not acting contrary to what is expected of people in 
the legal industry. So, you know, there are no excuses in short for not doing the right thing on this and what the right thing is, I think is crystal clear. Mm. I think uh, what you're referring to, is it the declaration of conscience? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting because in that, that you mentioned there's kind of a pledge not to um, work on cases against climate protesters. Yeah. Um, And I just wondered, obviously with Just Stop Oil and kind of increasing groups of, I guess, radical protesters, what your thoughts are? Like, do you think that that kind of, you know, does it help the ultimate cause or do you think it just disengages the public with climate change? Well, I suspect that's going to be a topic of um, academic study for years to come, you know, did ultimately, I think similar conversations happened around Extinction Rebellion, you Mm -hmm. know, when they kicked off um, a few years ago about whether or not these are ultimately helpful or harmful for public sentiment and for the movement of the politics on these issues. And, you know, I am certainly not someone who is in any position to judge the value of those tactics. What I will say is that, you know, these sorts of tactics like direct action have played a really important role in the past in social movements. I mean, starting in the UK, you know, with um, the movement to abolish slavery, the suffragettes, you know, and then obviously looking further abroad, the anti-apartheid movement, the movement for civil rights in the US, you know, direct action is part of a range of tactics that people employ to draw attention to an issue um, and to make sure that people realise the urgency of something that otherwise, if you were to just read the papers or go about your daily business, you wouldn't realise was as urgent as it is. Mm. So I understand the desperation for sure that people feel that drives them to engage in those kinds of tactics. Um, I think ultimately that, you know, we need a whole range of different strategies for moving the politics on this, which is ultimately, you know, as I said, I think governments are responsible for ensuring that we commit to moving our economies in the right direction. And from my view, we should all be focused on what's I, you know, most influential for government decision makers. And that's going to be a whole range of tactics, not just direct action, obviously. And on this kind of subject area of personal responsibility, with protesters using direct action to mm-hmm. kind of protest against this or with lawyers choosing not to represent clients, I thought it was really interesting looking at Client Earth's recent claim against Shell um, Mm -hmm. because I know that for anyone that's not already familiar, this is a first of its kind lawsuit because it alleges that Shell's 11 directors in the UK breached their legal duties under the Companies Act 2006 because of a failure to adopt and implement an energy transition that aligns with the Paris Agreement. Um, So I just wondered, do you think that corporate directors should have personal liability when we're talking about climate change and fossil fuels? Yeah, I mean, obviously, directors have uh, responsibilities under company law. And I think that you can certainly make persuasive arguments along the lines of the one that Client Earth is currently trying to make in court, that it's inconsistent as a director to have a business model that's incompatible with the broader best interests of a company, which are surely to make sure that you have a viable future in a in a livable world and also aren't taking steps to um, act contrary to what is, you know, an emerging consensus around what companies should be doing. So, yeah, I think it's a new area of law in terms of the way that we interpret the legal duties of, of company directors. And I have no doubt that no matter the way that this particular case that Client Earth has brought goes, um, I'm 100% sure that it's going to be litigated uh, pretty 
consistently for mm. years to come. Yeah, I think I thought it is interesting because there's other areas, not just with like um, climate change, but I know, for example, that the Environment Agency, so the environmental regulator in the UK has said it, you know, won't hesitate to press charges against water company employees, for example. So yeah, perhaps this is in, in kind of all forms of environmental pollution, an area that CEOs and directors kind of need to be thinking about a bit more, I guess. We'll see what happens. Um, and finally, I just wanted to ask you about COP28 and greenwashing. So mm. there was a really interesting article in The Guardian recently that reported that the COP28 president had been accused of attempting to greenwash his image after it emerged that his members of his team had been editing his Wikipedia pages um, in relation to his role as the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. And I think, you know, given these revelations, and there were similar things around COP27 with controversy around the number of fossil fuel representatives that were actually present. Do you think that the COP agenda can still be an effective tool for global action or do you think, you know, we need to rethink or, yeah? Yeah, I mean, you've got to question the priorities of a guy who's focused on his Wikipedia entry over what I'm imagining is a pretty long to-do list if you're the president of a COP that's happening in about six months' time. Um, But putting that aside, I mean, I think that you know, if the cops didn't exist, we would invent them because they are the only forum in which all of the world's governments get together and have an opportunity to ventilate what their priorities are. And there is a massive imbalance of power in the room um, between countries from the global north and global south. I mean, starting but not limited to, starting with, you know, just the size of their teams and the resources that they have in preparing for these meetings and the kind of diplomatic machinery that they can bring to bear in these negotiations. But it's still a crucial forum for making sure that those voices are heard. And I think that even in this context where this is a COP that's clearly in many ways going to be dominated by the oil and gas industry and the particular lens that they bring to the energy transition, which is one that doesn't involve them interfering with their core business model of producing oil and gas. Um, I still think it's going to be actually a really important moment to highlight the role of the oil and gas industry in stymieing progress on climate change for decades and to really call into question, you know, the assertions that they're going to be making openly rather than just behind closed doors as they often do with our governments. So I think there's an opportunity to really hold the industry and its enablers and supporters to account um, at this COP. And I know that there's also going to be a concerted effort, both among governments and also critically within civil society, to make fossil fuel phase out a core part of the conversation around COP28. So, you know, it's setting itself up to be a pretty uh, polarising debate, I imagine. Um, But, you know, that's that's great because we do need to have those conversations and expose the oil and gas industry for what it is in, I think, this context, which is a fundamentally bad faith actor, I think, that's not interested in changing. Well, we definitely have kind of an interesting time ahead with, as you say, as you say COP28 in six months, a general election on the horizon, and I'm sure many more pledges from both parties about what they're going to do around these issues. So yeah, it's been a fascinating conversation and I look forward to seeing the work that you and the rest of the Uplift team continue to do. So thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Pippa. It's been a pleasure. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to Shosha Aidy, Pippa Neal and Tessa Khan. 
If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please head over to endreport.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you again next time.